And we are live. Good morning, everyone. Good Monday morning, I should say. And it's really Monday afternoon. I, I get out of the hole a little bit slow on Mondays, uh, especially since now moving to a schedule where I have Fridays semi-off. Um, just the email alone is uh, is quite cumbersome on a Monday morning, so it's typical for me to be starting at 1 instead of noon or something like that, which we are today. And uh, <clears throat> today we're going to revisit a topic I've talked about a lot before, and we're talking about permaculture today, but I don't mean the general broad permaculture. The topic we're going to get into today is practical permaculture for most people. And the difference between that and, uh, you know, what I would call PDC philosophy permaculture, permaculture design course, um, I, I will tell you that as we get into today's show, you might feel at some point that I'm kicking uh, PDCs a little bit down or punching down on them or something. I'm not. I just think like many things in the world, different things have different places for different people. And I think there are a ton of people, and I'd be interested you know, and I'll probably ask again because people are just starting to come into the live stream. Is there anybody out there that took a PDC? And after your PDC, you're like, well, I learned a lot. That was interesting. That was great. I feel like I can do things now that I couldn't do before. But you're also like, well, that's not really what I expected. That's not really going to make me a better gardener in my own backyard. I, I didn't learn anything about, you know, saving seed or something like that. Like just was there anything that you just felt? That's not what I thought I was getting. And we're going to kind of talk about it from that viewpoint today <clears throat> and trying to make permaculture as approachable and practical as possible for as many people. Um, you do not need to understand, for instance, how to handle septic systems on a tropical island in the South Pacific so that you do not contaminate the freshwater lens that is the island's water supply. I think it's really great that anybody touching anything on a freshwater uh, with a freshwater lens on a, a tropical island know that. I, I really do. I think it's a good thing. I'm not upset, for instance, that I learned about it in Jeff Lawton's PDC. It just won't do anything at all for me in my backyard in North Texas. Not one thing. Not, there's a lot of things like I can say, well, if we take the pattern and we translate it over here, and now I can tell you with my mind that we can do this because of that. Yeah, and there's probably 1%, 2% of people in the world are like me with a crazy weird connections like that, right? And the recall and everything goes with it. So even that wouldn't be put, there's there's nothing. There's nothing I can come up with that my garden, my homestead, my life will be better because I know about a freshwater lens on an island in the South Pacific. I can be really cool as a speaker by dropping that little nugget of knowledge on people's heads somewhere or something, but it's not very practical, is it? And... <clears throat> What I want to do today is kind of restore permaculture to the people a little bit. Uh, we will, again, talk a little bit about who should take a PDC. Not so much is a PDC good or bad, but who, who should do it? What's it for? What's its purpose? Versus understanding practical permaculture design and technique so that we can say, hey, I want to grow more and better food. I want to have the systems thinking brought into my own backyard. That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. BulkAmmo has been with us a long time. I want to say about eight or nine years we have been working with them. They have all the common calibers you can think of. They have them in bulk, lightning-fast shipping, great pricing, 
and they really do have a great stock in place right now. We've been through some ammo shortages over the last few years here and there, but right now things are mostly back in stock. You should check them out today at bulkammo.com. Remember, they do a discount for you guys in the MSB, and if you're not an MSB member, you know that one discount alone, if you buy ammo in bulk, will help pay for your account right there. Next up today might be at this point the longest continuous sponsor that we've had at this point. Knifekits.com. I know they came on board like March of 2009. You want to do the math on that. They're heading for an anniversary. So they have supported us damn near as long as you possibly could have supported us. Knifekits.com has all the cool stuff you need to learn how to make knives. You can start with raw materials and completely do everything yourself. You can start with a kit, hence knife kits. You can also get material for making sheets, Kydex projects, all kinds of cool stuff. And again, you can get really basic stuff or you can get advanced things like, you know, buffalo horn or buffalo bone or mammoth tusk and other really cool stuff. You can find it all at knifekits.com. And while it's a small discount, uh, because their margins are pretty thin, they also do a discount uh, for members of the MSB. So make sure that you get that discount. And we did have, I, you know, I hear from people time to time, hey, I'm a member, but I don't ever use the discounts because I feel like I get enough value. You know, if you use the discounts, then I'm giving back to you. But you're also saying to the people that do the discounts for MSB, we value you as a supporter of the MSB. And it's good for all sides to connect with each other through our community. So please do not hesitate to use the discounts. And if you ever have a problem with a discount code, let me know. Between myself and Tom, we'll figure out what's going on and we'll fix it. All right. So let's start off with permaculture. What is permaculture for the everyday person and why should you care? Now, if you ask various permaculture teachers and practitioners and consultants around the world to find permaculture, you'll probably get a slightly different definition no matter who you ask. The term you will probably hear the most in common, though, from person to person is design science. And the other term you'll probably hear is systems design or systems thinking. And that's how I define permaculture. It is a design science based on systems thinking that utilizes living things and natural systems to produce everything that humans need in a way that is not just sustainable, but if done properly, is restorative to the environment. And that's only one of my definitions. But we can use that, and we can explain why it should matter to the average person. So do you eat? Okay. Do you want to grow some of your own food? Sure. Okay. Well, then you could just throw a garden in. But if you learn systems thinking, well, maybe your garden will be in the right place. Maybe you'll get more out of it. Maybe you'll use it more. Maybe it'll save you more money. Maybe you'll avoid type one errors of putting a garden somewhere that was really suboptimal. And five years down the road, when you figure it out, you're not sitting there looking at a sunken cost fallacy and saying, I really don't want to move it now because it's been there for five years. That, that would just be one. If you're going to homestead, you're like, I know I'll get chickens. Really? Do you know how to do an analysis of a chicken? I mean, what do you do? Analysis of a chicken? Well, what does a chicken do? What are its intrinsic characteristics? What are its inputs? What does it need? And those those inputs, what outputs do they result in? And how do we connect those outputs to other components in our system so that we can follow the permaculture principle of produce no waste? Oh, compost it. Okay, well, how do we set up our composting 
integrated with our chickens so that we don't do too much work, then not actually do the work and end up with inferior or no compost and a waste problem. We haven't even scratched the surface, have we? And, and, and the reality is, if I try to just teach you all the things, there's no way you can learn them all. But if we come at this from a systems thinking viewpoint, we do cover tactics and techniques to a broad degree to broaden our understanding of all the possibilities we have. What are our tools? And I don't just mean physical tools. I mean things that we know, things that can be done. I'll explain it to you. It totally seems divorced here. But I teach my grandchildren all the time, what are my tools? Always be willing to ask yourself that because it may be picking something up off a table around you or it just may be something you know how to do. So recently we put in a, a Murphy door, which is basically like a hidden door uh, to our, our big pantry. In our kitchen, it looks like a bookshelf. Now, I'm not giving away anything super secret. I think if anybody was really trying to case the place, you could figure it out. So I don't mind telling you that. We did it more for aesthetic purposes than my wife wanted it. And if she wants something, she gets it. And so when you go inside, if you close it, it doesn't really lock or anything. You just, you, you just you know push it open from the outside. That means you got to pull it on the inside. So we put a little cleat that you can grab onto on the back side of it. And you grab on it, you pull it open. Well, my granddaughter went in there, and because she is what a kid is and likes to play with shit, she shut the door. Turns out, can't reach the little clod. Now, if you stick your fingers in there and keep jacking with it long enough, you'll get it open, right? There's also a stool in there that you could stand on, so she could reach the little clod and pull it out. And there's a door that goes outside and just walk around. Well, being a little girl, she got kind of scared. And she eventually was getting it open, but she was kind of crying a little bit and all. And I got in there with her, and she was ready to run out of there. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. Papa's here now. Let's close it now. Let's think. And I said, what are your tools? And since she wasn't scared because she was thinking clearly because Papa's there, and Papa obviously can open it, she starts laughing and goes, I could have got the stool. I said, well, what else could you have done? Well, I could have went out the door. Yeah. And if you couldn't get out the door and you couldn't, there was no stool, what she goes, I could have just knocked on it. You guys are right there. You would have heard me and let me out. So there was no reason to be scared, right? No, Papa, there's no reason to be scared. See, use your tools. Use your tools. That's part of permaculture is understanding what is here, what is already here. So that's why it should be in, in, important. Now, I do want to beat up on PDCs a little bit here because one of the problems I think we have in the permaculture space is we're so big on telling people PDC, PDC, PDC. We almost make it like you're not really a permaculturist if you didn't take a PDC. You know, and that would be like saying, well, unless you take Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're not a martial artist, as though taking any other discipline or learning any other form of martial art is not being a martial artist, right? Like people participate in different things at different levels. If you're a bowler, if you're not a member of the PBA, I think is what it is, you're not a real bowler. If you're not a member of the PGA, you're not a golfer. This is just stupid. If you didn't take a course by one of the certified masters of golf, you're not really a golfer. That's just dumb. And so we need to separate the concept of a PDC from being a permaculturist at all. And honestly, most of the really biggest names in permaculture who are huge advocates of PDC pretty much said the same thing all the time. I know Jeff Lawton does. 
I know David Holgram does. I've never even heard David Holgram mention a PDC, right? And he's the co-founder of it. I'm not saying he never did. I'm saying I've never, you know, all, you know I listen to everything I can by Holgram. I've never heard it mentioned. And here's my issues with PDCs. Number one is the biggest complaint I get from people who took one, whether it's something I'm associated with or not, doesn't matter. It's not what I expected. And I see it often when somebody's like selling one online or something and like, I can't wait till I'm done with this because then I can get started on my garden and my orchard. Well, that person actually, you know, I want them to do it from a permaculture way. But if that's all they want versus a PDC, they would be better off going to a master gardener group and getting some education on how to prune. That will do more for them. There's not anything on how to prune and very little practical how to garden in a PDC. Where's the garden going? Why is it there? So it's more about that. So that's not a complaint about a PDC being wrong. It's just that's not what a PDC is. And I think when we're selling something that people are paying a thousand bucks for or more, and if it's an on-site one that's two weeks long, you're giving up 15, 16 days of your life by the time you factor in travel. You've got thousand dollars or more into it, plus all the expense with travel, all the expense not being home, and you're not really clear on what you're buying. I think it's a mistake. I think at least the unhappy people. Um, the expense, I hear the expense complaint inside and outside both. Now, you know me. There's a lot of times people say, that's expensive. I'm like, well, then don't buy it, but you're not going to get what you're getting because you didn't pay for it. If somebody bitches that it's really expensive to put a well in, well, do you want a well and water that comes out of the ground, or do you want to figure out some other way to do this? I am the person who always says, when it comes down to it, if it's something critical in your life, buy once, cry once. So have no problem making financial investments. But if somebody feels it's expensive and we add to it, it ain't what they thought they were getting. Then it becomes detrimental to the entire movement. Not what I'm looking for. The time commitment is huge. It's huge. And I think there is this attempt by many within the space to break it into like these modules that are slow over time. And in and of itself, it's not that bad. But when we're talking about a traditional PDC that's designed to do what it does, and it does it very well, which is create people with the foundation to become global consultants, okay? Not teachers. You go do a, you go actually build projects, then you can turn around and be a teacher. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean you don't teach anything at all. What I mean is you don't go take a PDC and then turn around next week and have your PDC course. We'll talk about that a little more in a second because you have no practical experience at that point, right? Unless you had all the practical experience and you added it, that would be a totally different situation. Um, but so much of the information is not directly applicable to their goals. Sit down with somebody. I'm going to take a PDC. Why? What do you? Well, I want to build my homestead. What do you want your homestead to be like? I want these animals. I want to be able to grow my own food. I want to be able to preserve it. I want to put solar up on my house, whatever. Like, it will help you with the mindset of all of that, but it will give you almost no information about actually doing it. And I, I've heard it over and over from people, and, again, I want to hear from people in, in the comments here. Have you taken one and then just thought, not what I really expected? Or maybe thanks to me over the years, I've 
this is not the first time I've said this, but you avoided that. And I hope I help people avoid that. I hope the right people take PDCs. And I think a PDC is right for anybody that has the money and the time and knows what they're buying. I think it's life transforming and changing. But that's a that's that's a different order, right? This is a different part number than I want my garden to be kick ass. Yeah. And I know when you start talking about this way, people tend to say, but Jack, you know better than anybody. Permaculture is not just about your garden. It's about your house and how you design your house. You can design communities and businesses. Jack, you've done whole shows on using permaculture design methodology to design businesses. You teach that. Yes, I do. But why do people come to the dance? 90% or more people come to the dance because they want a badass homestead or a small market garden or something like that. Right? Um, man, I, I know you're not complaining, Humble, but this bugs me. I'm going to have to stop doing this because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Humble Mechanics is not complaining, but YouTube is blasting me with ads. I've gotten so far. Four so far doesn't bother me. Get paid. Just a heads up. The ads are supposed to be set at a frequency of no more than once every 30 minutes. Do something for me, though, Humble, while we're doing this. When it comes back, don't skip it. If you don't skip it, let me know what happens. Just do that once for me and let me know, because that might be the issue. Somebody said something about that. But I'm going to have to start turning them off, because this is ridiculous. I mean, YouTube, Google, whoever the hell you are, if you're listening, why do you give creators an option to set frequency and then just shit all over it? Because I, And the reason I'm pissed, because I can't turn it off in the middle. I can't fix it right now. I can't change it while I'm – so now I have to live with it again. And I'm sorry I ever yelled at anybody in the audience, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm fucking done, YouTube. I'm done. I'm just done with your bullshit. Fine. Keep your fucking money. You, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's... No. Nah. You can keep your gas money, assholes. I'll find another way to monetize shit. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm turning off all my ads on YouTube for everything. I'm not going to go back and retroactively do it. Going forward, no more ads. Fuck you, YouTube. Fuck you. Because you're making me break my commitment to my people. I'm sorry I'm on a rant. Gonna have a sip of coffee. We chill out. We're gonna go back to freaking permaculture. But you want to talk about violating ethics? These assholes right here. All right, <laughs> don't be don't be apologizing, humble. I need to know this is happening to people. Anyway, um, but you know the other thing is PDCs teach an overriding macro philosophy. And then all of the techniques, the tactics, the implementation, you're to figure out what you need. And then, well, if you need a Google mound, how does that work? Right. And, and it's good in a way because it separates technique from permaculture. Techniques are inside permaculture. They're not permaculture. Because the, you know, the other side of this is people, all they do is watch YouTube videos and all these talk about permaculture. Like, oh, I hate permaculture. Well, why? Well, swales are stupid. I have no purpose of a swale on my property. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but no one said you had to have a swale. No, a permaculture is a swale food forest. No, no. That's like saying bricklaying is architecture. It's that far off. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm distracted now. And the other thing that I hear a lot of people say is, even the people that are relatively happy, 
the time and the money could have been better spent. I, I find that to be a poor investment. When I get done spending my time and money on something, if I'm like, I would have been happier if, and it doesn't have to even be an investment for like getting ahead or something like that. I'll give you an example. If my wife and I go on a vacation and we get done with that vacation and we're like, we should have went to Sanibel again. The, it, it, we're not upset with the vacation. Just the money could have been better spent. So the person that wants the garden could have literally afforded all the material to build the garden, all the seeds, all the lights for starting their, their, their seeds indoors. Right. And, and they could have maybe paid a hundred bucks for education to learn the few things that they needed to learn. And they would have a garden with automated irrigation going right now instead of being there sitting going, I spent a thousand bucks in two weeks of my life and I still don't really need know how to do this. There is, and I, I've talked to people that are close to me about this. So I know there's a, there is a feeling of this, but I, I want to tell you that it is, it is not the fault of like the Permaculture Research Institute or even most of the teachers that this is the case. There is like a Ponzi scheme stigma about PDCs. Like the purpose of a PDC is to get a PDC so you can teach a PDC and then you go teach PDCs. And it's like Amway, right? You teach two and they teach two and they teach two, but you keep teaching your two and you keep charging a thousand bucks. And I don't know hardly anybody. I might have said there isn't anyone. I don't know anybody, though, who's a successful permaculture teacher who regularly teaches permaculture courses, who's not an active practitioner and consultant. I know a couple that market it that way, and they're really kind, and I don't want to say who they are, but they're really kind of useless, but they're not successful. They're not successful. They're all fluff and puff, and they don't actually have to do anything, and they have a course, but nobody buys it. Certainly nobody leaves their home and spends two weeks with a bunch of other people to learn from them. And I, I want to see more bringing of education that's practical to people. And so if you have this kind of like Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme mentality around a PDC, it ain't there because of any of the people actually teaching it right. It ain't there because of Bill Mollison or David Holgram or Jeff Lawton. That's not the purpose. The purpose, again, is this. And you, you got to understand something. Having I've taught at PDCs myself. For a single instructor to teach an entire PDC for two weeks is almost an in, inhuman endeavor. It's a torch. It is. You're asking so much from a person. So much. It's hard to do. You know who said it was inhuman? The guy that invented it, Bill Mollison. He said it is an inhuman course to teach. It takes everything out of you to teach it alone. So it's hard. And it is taking a year-long college course and cramming it into two weeks. It's that much. It just maybe that's not what you're looking for. Because to me, there is nothing that is more frustrating when you've spent money and given up time to be in a classroom and you get to the point where you're thinking, oh, I can't wait till this part's over because I don't really care about it. But I guess I got to do it to get the little piece of paper at the end. And, and, I, and I try when I put educational programs together to avoid that. So how do we make permaculture design personal 
and for everyone. Well, I think the first thing that we need to teach people, and you'll learn this in a PDC, this is buried under a lot of other things, is the first thing that you analyze in a design, if it's for your own property, is you. You and your family, including the rest of my family isn't going to do anything, and I need to be honest with myself about that. If they ever do, we'll work them into the design down the road, but right now I'm not counting on them for nothing, which is usually the way it is, because like one person gets the bug and the other one does it, and the kids don't care. Kids grow up and go away, but not examining the humans first. If I told you that my primary goal in a property design was to have a little chicken farm, this not even define what it is. Just chickens. That's my normal one thing. I want chickens. You might say it's really easy, but I said, well, you'd start examining if you were consulting with me. What kind of chickens? For what purpose? Where are they going to live? What are you going to feed them? What are you going to do with their waste products? What is your frequency for replacement of layers? Are you going to buy them? You said, I mean, you would you'd be like, if chickens are a big part of this, then we need to spend some time investigating the chicken. If I turned around and said, I don't really want chickens. I want sheep. Well, apart from the fact that maybe I have a personal, uh, what multiple personality disorder, right? Then we're going to examine the sheep. Okay, what's more integrated into your design than you, right? We call this in, in the world of consulting, when you do a permaculture consultation, client analysis. First thing I want to do if I have a client for permaculture is analyze client. How much are you going to work? Why are you doing this? What do you really want? How do you go to your car in the morning when you leave? That's a path. That's a zone one path. Where do you spend most of your time on your property? What do you love? What do you hate as far as seeing? What do you love to do and what do you hate to do as far as doing? I'm going to analyze you. Since I'm not there, because you can't hire me to do that because I don't do that work, okay? you need to analyze yourself first. It's the biggest thing we don't do. Whether it's permaculture or anything else we do on our property and our homes, we fail to analyze ourselves. Let's look at it from a standpoint of something that it is permaculture but doesn't have to be. A pond. I'm going to put in a garden pond. I don't know, five, 6,000 gallons attract birds and frogs and waterfalls and prettiness and plants and koi swimming around. Not aquaponics, not trying to grow food, just going to put a pond in. Where? The first thing I would say is, since the pond is mainly for you, where would you observe it from? Inside and outside both. Where do you spend most of your time? I don't want the pond in blazing hot sun, especially in a southern climate. I want some shade over part of the day, but I probably want shade over the observer. right? So I'm analyzing, even for the element, I'm analyzing you as part of the flow because you are. And that's that's easy, right? But if you have a big, beautiful window, and you're like, I'll put the pond right there so I can see it. But what if the spot's bad? Is there some way we can make the elements meet what has to be done? But start by analyzing yourself. And when you do, here's how to do this. Here's the questions. Define your output goals. What do you want? And do you want it because you saw it on YouTube and it looked cool? Because you actually use it. Like, you should actually analyze how, especially if you've got on board like me, 
with like the whole Ken Berry thing and you're mostly keto, how much fruit do you need to grow? Well, if you're not feeding it to animals or something or doing something with it, probably not as much as you think. Yeah. How much vegetable do you eat? What vegetables do you eat and not eat? Because there's so many of us since we're preppers, I need to grow a massive amount of food so I can survive the apocalypse. Okay. Okay. You've survived the apocalypse. What are you going to do in the meantime? Maybe building a system designed to be quickly ramped up would make a lot of sense, but don't be growing enough food to live on when you ain't going to live on it and you don't know what you're going to do with it. So you need to sit down first, like day one. What do I want my property to produce? And then start analyzing those things and determining, do I really or just like the idea of? And then what's my priority? Let's say your person makes a salad a day. Then salad vegetables would go really high on that list. They're expensive. The quality is crap out of the store. They go bad quickly. There's nothing better than cutting greens and eating them within the hour. So you that's just one example of that. Next, define your ability to do maintenance, projects, etc. in skill and time. I'm going to build a, a, a chicken coop. Great idea. Never built a structure before? No. Okay. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying that if that is your mindset, I will build my own chicken coop from scratch. Uh, I know how a saw works. I have a nail gun. I saw somebody use it on the Internet. You know, uh, I've got a saw. I've got some plans in my head, and I think I can do this. I bet you can. But you know what you shouldn't do at that point? Go get little chicks. Little chickens, little bitty thing running around a little brooder. Within two weeks, they're flying out of it. Those two weeks go like that. So you need to look at what you can do and the things that the priority order of those things. And when it comes to animals, infrastructure is in animals. We said that one again. Infrastructure is in animals, not animals in infrastructure. But Fred will give me six chickens for free. Chickens are cheap. You can always get chickens. Infrastructure, then animals, right? That should be a permaculture principle. I just invented it. It is. That's another thing about permaculture. Nobody owns it. Nobody gets to say jack shit about what it is and it isn't, other than you can cite the creators of it and what they said. And anybody that says that's not permaculture can go blow because the people that created it, that named it, that founded it, that wrote the books on it from the very beginning when it didn't exist one day and did the next in the 1970s, Mollison and Holgram, they get to do that. The rest of us just get to say, here's my interpretation of it. Not because I say so, because that's just morally and ethically right. The people that create a thing, you want to do something totally different, call it something else, go do it. Yeah. Um, you also need to consider your longevity plans for living on a property. I think there's a lot of people that because they know this is temporary, they don't do anything. I think that's a mistake. But there's also people that they know they're not going to be there very long term, and they do things that are significant alterations of the property itself in a way that may turn off potential buyers of said property. Don't do that. You have to factor in how long you plan to be in a place plus have an exit strategy if you need to sell a property. Because that's a real thing that happens to people. I'm not going nowhere. You and mom just lost a job. Now you're going somewhere. You see what I'm saying? You know? Um, you also need to embrace every design restriction and let it guide you. So many people 
They write me a letter, an email, whatever. Jack, I want to do this, but. And then there's all this bullshit about why they can't do it. And my response to that always is, are you trying to convince me or yourself? Because I start looking at it going, well, I can get around that and get around that and get around that. And that right there, here's a question about that. And you throw them back an answer and they're like, well, I don't want to do it that way. Then you don't really want to do it. See, the beauty is restrictions are the essence of design. There is no such thing as unrestricted design. And if there was, you'd have a really hard time doing it. We get it. And this is why I always say design, if only in your head and on paper, two or three properties that are not your own before you design your own. Because you'll find yourself, once you have a fundamental understanding of this thinking, I'll put a garden there because of that. And you can put an arch there and grow vertically. And the chicken coop, well, let's see, you come out the back door. Uh, garden to be right there so you can keep an eye on it. Zone one, chicken coop over here. Pathway between, spaces in the path. And just it just flows. It's just easy. Then you look at yours and goes, the solar aspect's not completely right. My neighbor on that side of the house is a Karen. And these are all valid design restrictions, but they need to be embraced. In the words of Jeff Lawton, the more restrictions on a design, the more elegant the final design, if the designer is good at his trade. So when you have lots of restrictions, it actually leads you to the idea that if we're doing principle-based design and ethical design with systems thinking, you're going to get very close to the best design for the situation possible because there's only so many ways through an obstacle course. So if I tell you run across that field, but what I really mean is I want you, let's say it's a square field, I want you to go corner to corner. How many other ways can you go that are wrong because I didn't explain to you what I meant? And what if there was a reward for doing it the right way, but no one told you what it was? But if I put a bunch of shit in the way, so there was kind of like a, like, it was all like brambles and trees and junk cars and shit, and there was a perfect path that went straight the way that I wanted you to go, well, all I would have to say is run across that field. Well, you just run through the open laneway because it would make sense. We have to start seeing design that way. And a good way to understand this, think of your living room, right, in your house right now. In your head, see your living room. Even if you're driving your car, just kind of see it, visualize it. Where's your couch? Where's the window? Where's the television? How is it laid out? Now, I bet you there's people that might lay your living room out a little bit differently, but most people would probably get very close to your design, where your furniture is and everything. That's what I mean by it. And it's because, you know, we don't want to put certain things in block a window, right? If there's an air vent we don't, and then a floor, we don't want to cover it up. All of these are restrictions. Now, when you think of a room exactly the size of your living room right now, but it has no windows. It has one door, which is the only restriction you're going to have in it. Now, design a, design a living room. Would you lay it out the way yours is? Probably not. You'd probably sit there and go, I'm really not sure, right? We'll put a, put a door in here. That goes to, let's say, a master bedroom. And then we have a kind of an open entryway that comes in from the dining room. We don't want to obstruct that. We have a window on this wall. We have a fireplace on this wall. Well, we're not putting the TV in front of the fireplace. We're going to put it on one of the different walls. We're going to put it above the fireplace. But we're not going to put it in front of the fireplace. The restriction just instantly helped us make a decision. When you look at your backyard and you're like, 
Well, I want a greenhouse. Well, let's analyze whether you really do. But assuming we get past that, where's the greenhouse go? There's a great big tree there that's going to shade it all day long. Is that bad? I don't know. Do you live in Texas? If it's if it's mottled shade and it's a deciduous tree that's going to drop all its leaves and the sun's going to be lower in the winter, it's a perfect place. It's a great big hemlock and it's going to shade out your greenhouse all through the winter and you live in Pennsylvania. That's terrible. So is it a restriction? And if so, where does it guide us? So what do we have to do? Do we cut the tree down? I don't want to cut down a mature tree. If I have one that's about to die, it's really old, it has a high timber value or something like that, sure. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't want to do that. So then how, where do I put, how do I make this work? How do I fit that in? It's, it's one of the most important things you'll learn in any permaculture course that's worth taking. But sitting through 80 hours of a PDC learning about the landscape profiles of dry, arid desert climates, probably not the way that you need to learn it unless you want to do things on a different level. I mean, if you want to be a consultant and a teacher long term and you're willing to not just get the training, but put in the work and get the practical experience, you totally want to take a PDC. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you have the time and the money, you want the the mental sh shift in your brain, you should take one. But not everybody. Um, you also want to put your ideology in your black back pocket. Right. Your ideology, all the things that you do because you think you should. Um, all your politics, all of it, put it in your back pocket. Now, people get upset when they say this. He doesn't care about ethics or some other bullshit they'll make up because they don't like me because I like guns or some shit. Because I wear shirts like this awesome one from John Willis, even though they're they're and they're following a discipline that was actually invented by two anarchists. I'm just saying, Mollison was totally an anarchist, and Holmes still around. He's like, hey, I'm an anarchist. They're like, no, he's not. What well, he says he is. Anyway, um, you know, you. you I don't think putting something in your back pocket means that you get rid of it. Up until I started carrying, you know, a Ridge wallet in my front pocket, I always carried my wallet in my back pocket, and it's kind of important. It's got money, my ID, my credit cards, uh, pictures, right? Like, so it matters to me. A lot of people carry their phone in their back pocket. Most people tend to value their phone. So something being in the back pocket means doesn't mean it's not valued. It just means I'm not going to let it get in the way while I'm figuring this out. Because you will hit points where, like, is this optimal? No. But is it the best I can do where I'm at at the time? And in that situation, we want to get ideology out of the way because I trust people without some sort of catechismic, like, you know, catechism of a religion over their heads to generally do the best they can to do the right thing. So that's my advice on that. Some additional advice. Don't get married to any specific tactic or element. When I moved here, I was pretty big on hugel mounds. And I built a lot of hugel mounds in Arkansas. And they worked really, really, really good. And so I built some here. And I built some that are okay with what they're doing. They're like micro hugels that run like a mini orchard and all. And they do fine for what they are. I also built some other ones, which are gone now because we dug them up and got rid of them because they were completely pointless. And it's not so much the climate, but the terrain and the means by which we're going to maintain things here and what we're trying to do with the property. So there's not, not you know, there's people, well, hugel mounds are fine in humid, cool climates, but they don't work in the tropics. 
says the person that never built one in the tropics and has no idea what a hoogle mound is even supposed to do. It's an active, medium-term composting method that builds topsoil. And the master of all hoogle culture, Sepp Holzer, you know what he does with his hoogle mounds eventually? Pushes them flat and spreads them out on a terrace where he's just made massive amounts, million dollars per terrace worth of topsoil. They don't live forever, right? But you can get addicted to a technique. I want swales. Why? Because I saw them and I love a food. So you want a food forest. And you think swales are necessary to have a food forest. Should we do swales? There's a lot of analysis there. So I'm not going to get into how you make that decision today. I only have so long to spend with you today. But I'm not going to ever be married to, and I have been married to some techniques. Partially because as a teacher, I want to actually have experience with it. And I'm willing to make an error learn from the error so that I can teach better. A lot of you don't have that flexibility in your life, especially if you have a reluctant spouse who's agreed to let you do something, and then you go do something that fails and you have to push it back in. I'm going to tell you, they get mad. I'm telling you, they get mad. <laughs> All right, moving on. I One of the biggest things that you really need to do, though, to make a backyard homestead a true systems design, a permaculture design, you need to consider how every element will interact with every other element if there's an interactive connection. I have a chicken coop with chickens in it, and I have a garden. How do they interact? And how many ways can I find that they interact? The chicken could mess up the garden, so that's an interaction I want to cut off. The chicken may be an integral part of pest predation around the garden, if I can limit the chicken's access to garden adjacent but not garden inside, I want to enhance that interaction. But the chicken is connected to the garden in that the garden produces waste that goes to the chicken. But if it's waste, it doesn't go garden to chicken. It goes garden to some form of processing in the house over to chicken. Chicken makes poop. Chicken has uh, uh, mulch in, or uh, bedding inside their coop. This all results in fertility, a fertility battery. Dry carbon with dry nitrogen poop on it. Eventually, it needs to go somewhere and become compost. Compost goes to garden. But chicken does not poop in garden. There's multiple levels of connection and interconnection. You need to analyze all of those, or you will miss Design opportunities. And every time you miss a design opportunity, you either get less quality results or more work for you, and usually both. You get less results with more work. Not what I'm looking for out of permaculture. I want more results with less work. And the only way I'm going to get there is a very deep dive analysis. Now, this does not mean sitting around under a Bodhi tree for 19 hours contemplating the chicken's poop. And it does not sitting down with a protractor and, you know, a slide ruler and a solar compass and all kinds of shit, even though some of that stuff can actually get used. What I really mean is simply taking the time to think about it, simply writing a list. What is every element on my property and how does it relate to every other element on my property? It's one of the most simple designs or design techniques. It's in PDCs, but it generally doesn't get broken out that way. It gets integrated throughout the whole thing, and it gets missed. Yeah? Um, next. 
This is an example of something to think about, but this is a good one to actually think about. One of my favorite permaculturists is a gentleman from um, Arizona named Brad Lancaster. Now, I don't know if you know much about Arizona. It doesn't exactly rain there a lot. Most of the state is desert. His hometown, it's, I think it's Tucson or Flag. I don't know where he's at. He, he's in a very desert kind of small city, right? It's not like Phoenix or something. It's nowhere near that big. And he's transformed entire neighborhoods with water, water harvesting techniques and planting native plants and developing the culture of permaculture within the community. I mean, he is one of the, I think he's maybe the most underrated permaculture practitioner and educator that we have. I'm not saying he's the best. I'm saying the most underrated for what he does relative to how many people know about him. I think it's a huge disconnect between those two things. Very few people have transformed entire neighborhoods by actually doing the things that they teach. That's I haven't. I have not. Right. I think we have a different type of community reach. Like I'm more of a virtual reach, but I have not transferred transformed an entire neighborhood. I haven't taken an act of, of, of anarchism and done it so successfully that the government mandates the thing that I was doing in violation of the law, which is the way that he was cutting curbs to harvest water. Okay. That's how badass this dude is. You should totally look him up if you don't know who he is. And his name is Brad Lancaster. And his whole shtick is water harvesting. And here's a quote by him. Before I plant a tree, I plant the rain. It's the same thing. I, it's a permaculture principle, so you can state it different ways. It means the same thing, and it works everywhere. That's what makes it a principle. Here's what I mean by that. Remember what I said? If you want livestock, infrastructure, then livestock. Before the livestock, you have the infrastructure, right? You provide the thing the living thing needs before you take responsibility for the living thing. If you're going to go get a new puppy, you should have some food at home. For the puppy, you have a crate to crate train the puppy, a leash, a collar, an appointment with a vet. Now, these are all things that most people don't do that you should do when you get a puppy. You get a duck, you need a duck coop. You need a way for the duck to be protected. You need duck food, etc. You're going to put a tree in the ground. The number one thing a tree needs to survive is water. Lots of other things, but no water will equal dead tree Every time, especially a new tree just planted before it really reaches out its roots. So what he means by that, here's one example. They will literally take a concrete saw, cut a chunk out of the curb of the street, funnel when there's a rain event, the water to flow into, and then backfill out and go down to the next one. And then they'll plant the tree. There's other things they do. All I'm saying is taking that to a principle level Anything you want. What are all the things required to support it? And put those in place first. This principle-based design. And I want to talk a little bit more about principle-based design here and let you know something that if you miss this part of the podcast, you won't even know because I won't talk about it much. I am a huge believer in principle-based design, and this is why. The principle, again, is universal. If I teach you a principle about permaculture design, or systems thinking, systems design. It doesn't matter what geography you're in. It doesn't matter if you're in hilly country or flat country. The principle is the principle. It doesn't care. 
right? A principle, for instance, a statement of fact that you can use as a principle is water moves at 90 degrees to contour. That's a fancy way of saying water goes downhill. And it goes exactly in the least resistant way downhill every time. 90 degrees to contour, meaning contours level at 90 straight away from the contour line. Always. That's a principle. If it's relatively flat land like my property, that water may spread out. But in the end, it's moving downhill. If you're in a really hilly situation, it does the same thing. Now I look at the landscape and I use the principle and the fact that the principle is true to implement the design. And it doesn't matter. If I am in a warm climate or a cold climate, the principles of a thermal battery apply. How much I can get out of them is up to me and my design. So it's always about principles. On that note, since I complain some about the educational uh, landscape of permaculture, I am trying to improve it right now. So I have the bioreactor composting course. And my initial plan was bioreactor composting course, cover crop composting or cover crop course, and then biochar course in that order. That was the original plan. I have a ton of work done on the cover crop one. But what I got all the work done for, except building the PowerPoint decks this weekend is 12 principles of design. And so I think the course is actually going to be called principle based permaculture design. It's, you know, originally it was going to be maybe a two hour course. It'll probably be four or five hours. Exams, everything. Be a course I could easily charge 50 bucks for. Nobody would bitch. You know how much it's going to cost? Zero dollars. I am going to give it away. I am going to give away, and Amy says I already did the biochar course. Yeah, I I would have said the same thing when I when I put that huge episode out, but now having built courses this way, I can tell you there's so much more I want to do with it. But I am putting it last because if you want to make biochar, there's enough there that you can. Anyway, the principles-based design course is going to be free. And it's because I believe if you have that, then everything else will flow for you. And if you buy something else for me, I want it to flow for you. The other thing is I want people to understand what a course for me is like, what I'm like as an instructor. So if you're like, this guy's a dick, then I don't want you to give me any money. I, I don't. You know, if you're like, I don't want to, then I don't want you to buy my other stuff. I want you to know what you're getting from me. I'm a hammer, right? I'm not even, you know, the... Uh, the, the metal glove covered in velvet. I'm like the metal glove with spikes on it, man. And, 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 and I'm not for everybody. But I want to be able to provide that to you guys for free. You know, Tom's going to put a lot of work into it because he has to do the back end side of it. But I believe if we have that as our foundation, we'll be able to go. But where I'm actually going with this long term, probably the only time I'll say it until it gets more obvious on its own. I want to design what I've been calling forever a practical permaculture design course. Something that fixes all this. Something that a person says, gee, I want my backyard to look a certain way. Here's the way to take this education and this path and get that. And if they don't go to the point where they would have a true design certification, I don't care. They don't care either. They just want their backyard the way it is. But long term, what I'm seeing is having enough material there to say you have to take this. If you want the certification, you take this core. Then from this group, you have to take X number of hours from these like electives, but you have to choose from this group and then the balance from anything you want. And so that's what I'm building. I'm building the, 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 the foundational course in it, principle based design for free. That should be available 
pretty damn quick here. I don't want to push Tom too hard on his end, but I plan on working on the decks as soon as I finish up today. And again, that will be coming and that will be totally free. Uh, also, the people taking the, the compost course seem pretty happy with it. I found some ways already to make things better as we're going. That's why we were kind of cheap on our, our sales price for the first one. All right. Now, the next thing is the other thing you need to consider is your primary needs and wants. Remember, we always talked about analyzing yourself, right? You, 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 you analyze yourself is one thing, but what are your needs and wants and, and how to separate them together? And you need to do this from a lot of different ways. One is energy and the conservation thereof. I'll give you an example. I love my ducks. Even though my property is not 100% ideal for ducks, ducks are probably the livestock for what I'm looking for on my property, something that will graze, that will put fertility all over the place, that won't mess up my fragile landscape the way chickens do with eternal scratching, that'll stay off my porch. They're the best animal for that goal. That's why I chose them, because I did this analysis. With that being said, the work I have to do when my grandson's not here to do it is pretty minimal. I get up, I walk outside, I open a door, and the ducks come out. Sometime in the morning, I dump some tubs out, fill them up with fresh water, and I move them from the time I dump them till I fill them back up so I don't make a mess out of one place. And I put some food in a bucket, and I dump it in three feeders that I keep under a just a cheap table so they don't get rained on. And if my wife doesn't feel like it that day, I pick up some eggs and bring them in the house for her. That's it. And you know how I feel about that amount of human labor? Like, I do something with my life. It's no big deal. All right? It's no big deal. You know what, though? When it was eight degrees out the other day, you know what I didn't want to do? Didn't want to get up. Didn't want to go out to the coop. Didn't want to let the ducks out who didn't want to come out. Didn't want to dump the water out of their tubs. Fortunately, I dumped them out the night before so they weren't frozen solid like a giant six-inch thick 20-gallon ice cube the next day. Didn't want to turn the water on to the side of the house, hook up the hose to it, freeze my hands, stand out in the freezing cold, and fill those damn tubs up. Didn't want to do it. If I had to do it like that every day, I wouldn't have a duck. I'm willing to take that level of added misery in my human labor in a short time frame. If I lived somewhere else, I would need a totally different method to make ducks work for me. If I had to do that shit four months out of the year, I would be miserable. So we need to think about how much work we're making for ourselves and what we do. And it doesn't matter what that looks like. We need to think about it. And it's easier to think about doing a thing than to do a thing. That's a principle. And so we tend to undersell our labor in our minds as to how what it'll mean to us when we're designing and coming up with ideas. Please think about that, right? Uh, next, food. And know, know it's more than just food. There's a episode of Friends, the TV show Friends, where they're talking about foreplay, right? A little bit of adult conversation here, but nothing nothing really bad, just so you know, parents. Um, and the analogy that's being made by the guys is that the foreplay is kind of like the comedian before the band comes on. Like, if you go to see Pink Floyd, they bring out the comedian, yeah? And then the comedian tells some jokes, and then the opening band comes in, and then Pink Floyd comes and the lasers come. And 
Pink Floyd and the lasers is why you bought the ticket. And in the episode, then the woman wants the comedian to come back on the drive home where the guy's just trying not to fall asleep. Yeah, completes the metaphor. But when it comes to permaculture, yes, we can design a business, a house, energy systems for a home, entire communities. But why do people buy the ticket food? That's the thing that is universal across all of us. That is the thing that most people come to the dance for is I want to produce food. If it's not the number one reason, it's number two. Yeah. So we need to think about it, even though we know it's more than just that. But when it comes to wants and needs with food, what do you really eat? I see so many people grow tons of food and realize, like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. Because growing food's easier than preserving food. If you're growing food that you're not going to use as it comes, then we need a preservation method or a, a sales channel. So you need to analyze that very, very seriously. Like people say, like, I want chickens for meat. Okay, well, they make a meat chicken, but I want a chicken that does both. I can always tell a person saying that is never raise chickens. Never raise chickens. You want chickens for meat? First year anyway, go with meat chickens. Next best thing, get yourself a flock of girls that are a large breed egg layer. All the same breed. Red stars, for instance, you know, red sex links, black stars, whatever. Don't care what it is. Get yourself a rooster. Large breed, not the same breed. Yep. Put hen and rooster together. Hatch as many chickens as you want for meat chickens every year. You will get a significant amount of hybrid vigor by crossing your breeds. You're not going to get something like a Cornish cross, but you're going to get a larger, faster growing young bird. It'll make a decent meat bird. The, what you won't get is a good replacement for your egg layers. You'll get an okay egg layer as a result, but then you'll also screw up your known F1 generational hybrid cross. Why do I know that? Because I've done all of it. See, and that's what education do. It should, should shortcut that knowledge. Instead, if, if you're listening to that and going, oh, I did not. Well, maybe you should stop and learn from somebody who already did it. And then say to yourself, self, what do I really want? Because if what you really want is to put, let's just say, 20 meat chickens in the freezer every year, you are, not definitely, but you are probably better off buying 25 Cornish cross chicks and if you get all of them to go through, you get some extras. If you don't, you get at least your 20 and put them on the ground at the time of the year where they're the easiest to deal with. And they're, you're going to you're going to finish them before it gets hot or if you're going to start them late before it gets too cold and time your butchering to a time of when it's nice to be outside and do your butchering. But then you better analyze. How much space do 20 full grown chickens take up in a freezer? The answer is more than you think. Have you ever killed a chicken before? Maybe you should go kill one. Maybe you should put a thing on next door that says, I'm looking for somebody that needs some chickens cold. Full disclosure, I'm going to eat them. Don't care if they're ideal for eating or not. Go pick one or two old, you know, stewing hens up or something like that. Go through processing them. Don't tell yourself it'll be okay when it comes time. Learn from it. Evaluate yourself. Now, I, I use chicken as an example because they're universal. The breast chickens, I started that group and then got out of the way like I usually do. That might be the exception. That might be the exception. The breasts might be the exception. I, I hope that it is, honestly. But I haven't paid enough attention to my own little thing I started to know. 
another thing that people generally want from permaculture, recreation and beauty. One of the things that sells permaculture is you see this video of this dude with a backyard food forest, and there's food everywhere, but it's gorgeous. That's funny. If you have a blue hair and your name is Karen and you live in an HOA and you think HOAs are good, you probably don't think it's beautiful. But a normal human being who hasn't been co-opted by society's bullshit looks at a food forest and goes, holy crap, that's beautiful. Understand, that's a want. But it's a very important want. And beauty is subjective. So what will be beautiful? And design that. And then recreation. There's a fine line between recreation and labor. On your own property anyway. Here's what I mean. Do you know what I consider getting up about April 10th? It's about 60 degrees out for the morning low. A little bit of breeze. Birds are singing. They're dive bombing the feeders. They're splashing in the fountain on the little Miyagi pond I built for my wife out where the feeders are. The ducks are running around and quacking. And I come out and they're like, rawr, rawr, rawr. they see me and they're all happy. And I dump their tubs and fill them back up and fill their feeders and go in the house. Recreation. You know what I consider it last week? Labor. Okay. Now, that's seasonal and it's short term. It doesn't mean that everything that you think will be fun right now will be fun when you're doing it for the 800th time. So you should build as much efficiency and as much energy efficiency into everything you design as possible. Because this is only five minutes of work and this is 10 minutes of work and this is 30 minutes of work and that's no big deal. So you add them all together and go, shit, that's two hours a day. And, you know, birds and goats and weeds don't take weekends off. So that's 14 hours a week. That's a part-time job. And it's funny how a lot of things you think of as being, well, that's, I get to do that. Do it every day and it becomes work. So build the efficiency in as you, as you can, uh, as you can. So here's another example. Stu, this is a perfect example. Making wine from blackberries helps me go from labor to recreation mindset. Totally agree. Going out and picking blackberries and knowing these blackberries are going to become wine or blackberry meat or something like that. And, you know, either having your own bees you got the honey from or going down the road to your, you know, neighborhood beekeeper and getting the honey and putting it together and making blackberry mead. Wow. What a great weekend. What a great weekend. But you know what? If you worked at a meadery or a winery and you made that shit every day, eight hours a day, Five days a week with a boss, it would turn into labor, wouldn't it? And so we need to be careful that we don't take what we love and turn it into something that we resent as part of our design process. Um, medicines and herbal uses, that's something we need to design into our systems as well. And I think a big part of that is if we are eating natural food, our need for medicine just drastically goes down. Do you? What do you think would happen? I, I, this is a serious question, not just rhetorical here for you guys in the live feed anyway. What would happen if the following became a reality by some miracle? We ended up with, with a government that looked at everything and said that we actually should fix things for the people. And the main way we can do that is encouraging people to do the right things for themselves and putting systems in place where they can learn how to do the right things and getting out of the way where we're preventing it. 
I know it's fantasy land. Peter Pan's coming first, but let's just humor me on this. And one of the pushes was everybody should have a garden in their backyard. And, you know, anybody that wants to anyway should have some small scale livestock. People should trade with each other. And the average American's diet became devoid of things that come in a bag and a box to like only 10% of what it is today. That almost every person in America was getting 30% of their calories even from locally grown, all natural food. What would happen? Hold on. Because what would happen to the pharmaceutical industry? What would happen to the pharmaceutical industry? What would happen to the medical industrial complex? What would happen to companies that literally their only profit is they make equipment for and run dialysis clinics because they're profiting off of type 2 diabetics? Entire segments of our economy would literally dissolve within a couple of years. Seriously, like there would still be doctors, nurses and hospitals. This is not that much different from how people used to live not that long ago. By by human generational scale, even let alone global, you know, earth universal scale. I mean, universal scale, if the entire universe or the entire history of earth anyway, from a protoplasmic fireball of a planet to where we are right now was expressed as a day human beings entered the picture at 10 seconds to midnight of that day but even on human generational standpoint this is not that long ago we all used to live that way people still got sick there were cancers there's a lot less of them there was autism just a hell of a lot less of it like we can't this this extremism where we're like every single disease is really no stop it stop it stop it stop it stop it stop it people get sick some people are born with birth defects etc but the sheer volume of health impairment we have today so before we even worry about the fact that a comfrey is a good thing to put on a, a scrape or that white willow bark is an anti-inflammatory that can help with headaches and body aches or all the wonderful things cannabis can do where we're you know, able to, to grow it without being thrown in a pen. Um, we can fix a lot of our medical needs just by not eating poison. You know, what if, what if the average person, when they were cooking with a fat, was using, using beef tallow from a local grass-fed cow or lard from a local pastured pig or schmaltz, which is the fat from chicken, from locally produced backyard birds. What, what would that do? Just get rid of the seed oils and do that. You start to understand why they don't want us to do this because they think first of profit. Now, there's plenty of profit in there. There's plenty of capitalism in There's more capitalism in, in that system than the one we have. But there's centralized capitalism and there's distributed capitalism. We're talking about distributed capitalism here. So medicine and herbal use. But we should think about what can we grow that is value. Like I will never not grow comfrey. With comfrey, I have a, a compost kicker. I have grow a growing fertilizer. And I have a medicinal. And I don't care what anybody says. I have a pretty damn good tasting tea that comes from a little implement there. I have flowers that go in salads. 
If you eat it internally, nothing will happen. Okay, government can make something illegal. It doesn't mean it's toxic. I'm sorry. The research on that was so skewed and slanted. Makes you wonder why they did it. But medicinal and other herb use. So, do you know what's expensive? Herbs. We don't think of it because generally we don't know how to cook. We put sugar and slop in everything. So when you're using herbs in your cooking, you should be using way more than most rest of it. A pinch of this. You're making this giant pot of soup. Put a pinch of oregano in it. Oh, yeah, like you could tell the difference. Like if I made two equal pots of soup that were a gallon and a half, and I put a pinch of oregano in one and not in the other, you'd notice that. Bull crap. Well, we actually use herbs, especially fresh herbs, at the quantities that make sense in our cooking. And you look at what a pound of oregano or basil is, let alone something that's actually an expensive herb. There's a huge ROI there. Plus, we have pollinators. Plus, a lot of herbs are great for making, again, for fertilizers as well. Um, and additionally, see, someone here just said, I want a baller of a medicinal garden. You should grow one then. But, you know, you have to start thinking, too, like that's homesteading heathen saying that there might be somebody that they would grow an entire medicinal garden and not grow any food or any significant amount. Why? Because they are a herbalist who has a herbal cottage business. And that's the most important thing to them is growing and controlling their herbal supply and only buying what they can't grow from a trusted source. And if they make enough money doing that then maybe they can buy food from the market farmer down the road, and it's a better investment of their time. Some people would crap on that. You should be growing your own food. Why? That's not what they want. What do we analyze first in permaculture? Client. If we don't have a client, who is the client? We're our own client. Always, always back to that. Uh, you should look at the impact on wildlife, both positive and negative in both directions. Let's explain something. Let's say I have a place and I don't have a garage to put the car inside. I have a beautiful car. It's really important to me. Yeah. And I know I'm going to park it over here. And just over here, I think my chickens spend a lot of time over there. They won't bother my car. And let's say they won't. And I'm going to put a great big mulberry tree here because chickens will eat mulberries. And then I've got a fodder tree and I like mulberries. This is a great place for a tree. If I don't, Think about the fact that when that mulberry tree, if I'm not going to keep it pruned low like a bush, is 80 foot tall, when it goes into fruit, at the time the grackles migrate through my area, I'm going to have 8,000 grackles in that tree making grackle sounds. Yeah? And they're going to eat the hell out of those things, and they take about 37 and a half seconds to go from in the beak to out the butt. And they make a purple staining fruit all over my pretty car. Or, if I put it in the wrong place, all over my neighbor's house. So now we're like, I want wildlife. Okay. Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes the universe gives you your wishes. And if you weren't clear about what you wanted, think about all the sci-fi stuff about guy gets a genie and he asks for a wish. I want to be the ruler of a country. A great ruler. You know? And Eugenie's like, your wish is my command. And the guy wakes up and he's Hitler in the bunker. That's not what I meant. You should have been more specific. Be careful when summoning the wildlife to your property. Right? But also be careful that we don't 
chase away wildlife that we need. We need to think about how that flow works and what it looks like and then realize what wildlife means. It's not just deers and blackbirds. You know, insects are a form of wildlife. So we want to do things that bring things we want in and either repel what we don't want or make it so the things that we don't want can't damage the things that we don't want damaged by them so they become irrelevant to the whole. Because wildlife do not care about you. And they only care about a fence that's high enough that they can't get over it or is deep enough in the ground they can't get under it. They don't care. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Yes, in purple poop and stains, as Kay is saying, everywhere. Everywhere. My uh, my neighbors in Pennsylvania had this gorgeous choke cherry, not choke cherry, black cherry, in their in their backyard. And they loved the tree. It was gorgeous. They never cut it down. But I remember old man Stefan, he's talking about cutting it down all the time because exactly that would happen. In the spring, when the thing was full of fruit, the black bear, birds would shit all over his porch. I'd love to tell you I had a solution for him. I was a kid. I'm talking my teenage years here now. I have no, I had no idea back then what to do about it. But think about the impact of wildlife, both directions. The primary energies on your property and the things that affect it. This is not metaphysics. I don't mean the energy of the great spirit or something like that. And if you buy into that stuff, I have nothing negative to say about it, but it doesn't equal good design unless you're designing a place to sit and contemplate it. Like designing a garden so that you can sit in a place that you have designed so that you can sit there and meditate. Absolutely a perfect example of how you should build the property for the client and the family first. Total, I'm not going to do it, but I might build the same exact viewpoint because I want to just sit there and my form of meditation isn't contemplating my navel. It's actually watching the birds drink the water out of the fountain or something like that. Might even get to the same place for totally different reasons. But what I'm talking about here with energy is actual, tangible, kinetic energy that moves through our system. Wind is an energy. Wind is a form of kinetic energy. It's happening. It does work, right? That's how you know it's energy. It does some form of work. That work might be blowing leaves, and you might not care. But if the leaves that the winds are blowing, because the energy is such that about the end of March to beginning of April, that you have an average wind speed of 20 miles an hour throughout most of your day, and the leaves we're talking about being blown are your literally transplanted pepper plants seeing your garden doing this, and they look like you're holding them out the window of a car while you drive down the road at 25. Yeah, not good. That energy needs to be taken into consideration when we plan the location of that garden, the timing of the plant out, what else is around, and how we deal with it. There's a hundred ways to fix that problem. But it starts out with knowing that it could be a problem. Because this is what usually happens. person puts the garden in, they don't even think about it. First garden, why would they? They don't even know. They look at their plant dates. They go to farmersamelnack.com. They stick their zip code in there. Seven, blah, 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 blah. Bloop. It says plant at this date. They're even like, I'm going to bide my time. They wait a week longer. They go down to Home Depot or Lowe's. They buy plants for $4 a plant. Stick them in the ground. It's nice and calm the day they do it. They go in the house. They look outside, and there's their plant sideways with leaves blowing off of them. And they're like, ah, I just spent $80 on plants and they're all destroyed. And then they're out there trying to fix it. Might have been a good idea to have an understanding of that energy flow before you chose where your garden was. 
It could have been as simple as the wind blows this way. This is the predominant direction. And if the wind was blowing at a different thing other than straight across every single plant in an exact way that this thing over here would have created some wind shadow or something like there's a hundred ways to do it, but it all starts with, Hey, let me look. And this is, you really shouldn't do that much. At least that's permanent. That's not easily alterable in your first year on a property. First year on the property, you should be like the newly drafted quarterback to an NFL team that has a starter who is probably going to retire in one to two years and they have a great team and they're going to build that team around you. But you're not ready yet. You should spend the majority of your time outside of every game, preseason included, when they're not letting you play, carrying a clipboard and studying that pro and saying, this is what I would do here. What's he going to do? Oh, he did that instead. That didn't work. Maybe my way was better in this case. Maybe those new fresh eyes are right. But a lot of times you're like, well, that'll never, oh, shit. Oh, and you start developing as that player by watching that pro. When you're watching your land, land is nature. Nature is always the pro. Nature is always the professional. Nature always knows more than you. It always knows more than me. If we get everybody together that we know that knows everything about this shit, nature's still going to be like, oh, you think you know some shit? Let me show you. Boom. Hey, look at the quarter that came out of here. Now your plants are dead. Right? So we need to really focus. Okay? Really focus on understanding those energy flows. Because most of the problems we have come from some misunderstanding or lack of uh, lack of even identifying the flows of energy on our property. Right down to even how some insects behave. Like some insects don't like the shade. Some insects love the shade. That's just one example. And then some insects are at their most destructive during late in the day or early in the day versus middle of the day. And knowing all those energy flows plus that intrinsic behavior of that pest can help us mitigate the damage from that pest or to put that pest at a disadvantage to the predator. But it always starts with the energy flows. And the energy flows have a lot to do with the labor versus recreation mindset of pushing something uphill is a lot harder than pushing it downhill. Unless the hill is really steep and you actually literally have to hold it back to keep it from going downhill too fast. Examine all of this, right? Then storage, tool maintenance, and organization. We're going to keep your stuff What's that look like? How long does it take to get it? And how long does it take to put it back? And then designing systems. Like, here's one of the things that I started doing. And one of you guys gave me this one. I am, people think I'm like hyper organized. No, I am an idea guy. You know, I am an ESTP personality and the junkie personality types, right? I'm the, they call it the mastermind. They're the sales guy. You go out and sell the thing. Somebody else has to deliver that shit. I'm, I'm out of here. I don't do details, right? I know what the details are supposed to be. And as your, as your salesperson, I will totally call my team and jump their shit for getting them wrong, but I ain't doing it. Right. So my issue is that I take a tool, set the tool down. Then I take another tool. I set it down. I need the first tool. I don't remember where I left it and it's gone. So one of the things that I've done, it's made my life so much better on my porch and in both my shops. And out by my chicken coop and one out by my garden, I have a bucket or a bin with a lid so shit doesn't get wet. And if I'm done with something and I'm not ready to put it away yet because I think I'm going to need it again, it goes in the bin and the lid goes on it. 
So at least, but I can't find what I'm looking for. It's probably in one of the four bins. And then when I go get the bin, I can take it and like, oh, I made a tool board. Look at all the tools missing. I bet they're in the bin in the shop. And, get, and then just put them back where they go. And now I'm like, oh, I'm still missing that. Oh, that's in my bedroom. Because I hung that thing up today, so I took my drill driver in there. Right. So if you can't do it, right? Oh, I'm going to comment on that one, Builder. Give me a second. Because <laughs> I don't think I haven't done that, too. If you can't design something enough to compensate for whatever weird issues you have like that, that I have, then develop a, a secondary system to account for. So he says, get four times the tools. Yeah, I've, I've tried that, and you end up losing all four of them. It actually can, and, and I'm all for two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is even more, and five keeps you alive, right? That's that, that's kind of the whole way we played that out. But in a way, it can make it worse because it's like, oh, I can't find that drill. I'll just go get the other one. I'll just go get the other one. Wait, the other one's already, you see what I'm saying. So just, you can only go so far with that approach. Um, and then say, somebody stole it. I really don't think anybody stole it, dude. Well, somebody used it. Yeah, you. And you didn't put it. And I'm talking about myself here. I, I'm bad about this. Um, I also want to give you real quick some things I recommend. I'm not going to go deep into these. They're all in the, the, the audio notes for the show today. If you're watching the video, click the link and get on over there. But one is an introduction to permaculture by Bill Mollison. This is a PDF. It is 150 pages. It is gold. I've read it like eight times. And every time I think I really have gotten my shit together and I'm really like the best permaculture teacher and practitioner I can be, I sit down and read it again. And I find 10 things I didn't find the first 10 times I read it. It is fantastic. It is Bill in the early 90s when he was as sharp as a tack still and he was at his best. It's basically a transcript from a PDC series that he taught in Florida. Uh, with a, with an organization called Barking Frogs Permaculture, you've got to have it. It's free. It's There's a link. Download it and read it. I've gone so far, I literally printed it out so I could read it more like a book. And I actually prefer electronic copy for most things. Next up, um, the book that is probably the best book you can get your hands on for practical backyard scale permaculture is still Gaia's Garden by the late Toby Hemingway. Toby was a good friend of mine, a good friend to this community, a wonderful man. Um, cancer took us, took him from our world way too soon. But the fact that that will forever be part of his legacy, if you do not own that book, you should. Practical Permaculture by Jesse Bloom and uh, David Bongling, that is a great down-to-earth practical how-to permaculture book. It, 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 it doesn't even like it is marketed as a permaculture book. And it is, but you could take permaculture word off of it and sell it to people in the gardening homesteading section of a bookstore. And nobody that bought it would ever complain. In fact, it might actually be a good strategy for them to do is just make a second book and just call it like practical gardening or practical growing of food or something. And just see if it sells better because it might, it's, it's just that good. Um, I have an introduction to permaculture series, much younger and much fatter in it. Uh, but I go through about 16 lessons on practical permaculture. That's on my channel, but there'll be a link to the playlist, uh, that's available. 
And I have a channel on uh, Odyssey that I really haven't done anything with in a long time. But what I did is I collected a lot of these old lessons, talks, et cetera, by people like Mollison and Holgram and Lawton uh, and other people who don't even call themselves permaculturists, but they're amazing at what they're doing, like Dale Strickler, et cetera. And I, because this stuff gets taken down, I stripped it from wherever I could get it, put it on Odyssey where it can't be screwed with, and put it all together in one channel. I think there's over 100 videos there. They're all free. They're all free. And I really recommend that you make great use of those free resources. My final thoughts are this isn't hard, but it does require thinking. And we have entered a place in society where people equate thinking to hard, thinking too hard. And it's all a matter of whether you're willing to do the work or not, because can you see the final product in the end? So here's another recent real story that does not seem like permaculture, but it, you know, it does relate to the teaching we're doing today. My wife wanted a new cabinet for this area next to that door that I talked about that Tegan got stuck behind because she didn't like the old one. And it was the old one was crap. So she looked through all kinds of stuff. She finally found one on Amazon. It was on sale like 60% off. So it was like a $325 cabinet, like 160 bucks. Yeah. Good job, wife. She orders it comes. I look at the box and go, well, there's no way that came even partially assembled. I don't know how something not that big could have as many parts as it did. But it had like a gazillion parts, like bags and bags of different things that went together and different little screw guys and worm guys that hold things together and just pieces and pieces. And you had to build the drawers individually and then you had to do the slide rails individually. And then the legs were like this. And then this, the even the uh, to make it actually look like it's hand built because it is press wood, but it, it looks very hand built. Like even some of the things on the doors and all, you had to build the doors so there was multiple pieces together instead of like one pressed thing. Looked great. Opened it up, looked at it, said, that's about a four beer job. I usually look at assembly jobs. How many beers will I drink? And I also said, it's probably about a five cuss word. So I'm going to say shit or something like that. You know, I, I think it was two beers and zero cuss words. It was incredibly tedious. But the instructions were there. They weren't in Chinglish. They were in English, and they made sense, and they were logical. And when I took all those gajillion pieces out, they were all labeled A, B, C, D, E, right? All the little bags were labeled. I laid them all out. I had them all over the place. It looked like I was rebuilding a motor. And because I was willing to do the work, and I knew what the picture looked like, I knew what it wanted to be, and I wanted my wife to have it, even though it required thinking and being methodical, just did it. So much of what we're talking about is like that. People want to make it hard because hard is an excuse. What we're doing is the things that kept mankind alive prior to the Industrial Revolution. And humans have lived a long time, a much longer time before it than after it. Like I said, if, if, if you took all of Earth's history into a single 24-hour day, humankind came on board at about 10 seconds to midnight. But if you took the, the entirety of humans living on Earth and did the same thing, the Industrial Revolution has hit at about 10 seconds to midnight. The whole rest of the day, the whole rest of the day has been prior to that. And these are the things 
that kept your uneducated great, 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 great grandparents alive. So there's nothing that you're being asked to do that's that hard. The fact that we could take certain plants and mix them together and ferment them and make fertilizer for other plants, that seems like, oh, my Stephen Reisner last week, oh, my God. You don't think the humans figured that out before they even figured out how to write it down? It was just dad going this one, that one, this one, put it together, mix it up and do this. Really? None of it's that hard. But it requires exercising the most reviled muscle to exercise in modern times, the brain. We have to, we have to exercise the brain to get what we want out of design. Design by its very nature means that we had to be thinking through the process. And this is my kind of my final message to you guys today. The biggest reason people do shitty design is it's not a design. It's unconnected elements. I need a garden. Okay. My wife won't bitch if the garden's all the way out by the fence. So I'm going to put it by the fence. Now you don't see it, so you don't weed it as much, so it becomes labor instead of recreation. Well, since I'm going to put it by the fence, and I like straight lines, and that makes you know weeding outside the garden, I'm going to do raised beds. Not because raised beds are the right technology for my climate and my location. Because maybe they are, but because that's what everybody else does, and I can make a box. Make a box and stick it there. What way am I going to orient the garden? Well, I'm going to go a long way against the fence and match the fence. Why? Because it looks good to my eye. That's not a design. That's letting the existing hardscape dictate the location of a randomly placed element. What we should be saying is, where's the wind come from? If it's going to be near the fence, which of my two fences or my three fences or the house best block the wind flow at the time of year when I'm going to set out transplants? That alone is a, that you've already started to design versus randomly place an element. Now it's not about what it looks like. That's just a very small piece of the equation. Now we're actually saying, how does the energy flow? But if I do that, will it create too much shade? Or if I do that, Will it create shade on part of the garden, but not the rest? And do I have plants that actually will benefit from the shade? How am I going to get to the garden from my back door? Where's the place that I would go anyway every day for some reason? Can I make the garden work with that or at least get it adjacent to that? What else do I want? I want chickens. How do I make the garden and the chickens work together? I want a water element. How do I make the water element pleasing visually but productive from a food standpoint? And how do I tie it into other things? Since it's water and it's going to reflect light, how can I use that? Since it's water and if it gets too much sun in a hot climate, that will be bad. Where can I find shade? You, know, you want to do a garden in Pennsylvania? You probably want as much sun as you can get all day long. You do a garden in Texas? I can tell you right now where you want it 99% of the time. You want it in a place where a structure or tree or something gives you morning sun and afternoon shade. You do that in Pennsylvania and you're going to be like, well, the plants aren't really doing that great, right? Plants aren't really that great. Like they're not getting enough sun. 
because they really need that long duration sun because it's less intense. You put something in, you know, all day long sun in Dallas, Texas. And in July, it's like, I hate you. I'm going to die because I want you to die and I don't want to help you. I mean, it's that bad. So we have to adjust and we have to use that thinking process. The principle is independent of geography. The tactic and the technique are not. That's a huge thing. Builder says 90% shade cloth. Maybe. Maybe. You don't want 90% shade cloth here. Maybe you do if you want to let light still diffuse through it in your afternoon, but you don't want, you know, your 16-hour daylight all under 90% shade. You don't want it under 60%. Do you know how I know? Because I did 60%. You know what you want? What do you think you want in Texas if you're going to constantly shade something? 30 to 40%. 30 40% is gorgeous here. That is just, you, that might change if you go further south. And it damn sure changes if you go further north. But what the principle is, is when evaporation exceeds rainfall, the plant suffers. When the plant is transpiring, because evaporation, transpiration is a form of evaporation. Evaporation is, you know, as we think of as directly from the soil to the air, but the plant literally sweats. That's transpiration. When it has to transpire at a rate that exceeds its ability to replenish itself, that's too much sun. Does it matter if it happens in Pennsylvania or Alaska or Florida or Texas? If you exceed, evaporation exceeds rainfall, and we're talking about it in the context that I just framed it, plants suffer. And plants that are too wet for their species suffer. We have to find the balance. That principle doesn't matter where. Principle-based design. Principle-based design. Uh, Plant Propagation USA says they have 40%. They do. I've seen your stuff online, I think. I, I, I've seen you on Nostra or somewhere. Um, 60 40% is probably beautiful for where you're at, especially with the humidity that you have in that climate, right? And that's the thing. You have to factor in all these energy flows. You have to think about it. And again, if you're not sure, then you also have to avoid analysis paralysis. Do something that will avoid a type 1 error. A type 1 error is from the day you did it for the rest of your life, you wish you didn't, and it's impossible to change or it's so expensive to change that you can't do it. So don't do things permanently before you're sold on them for long term. Joel Salatin says, you think you need a fence, put in a temporary fence that can be easily moved. If in five years you haven't moved it, you can put a permanent fence in. But see, it's not don't put the fence in until you're sure. It's do the fencing in such a way that the material can easily be repurposed. And don't go putting in the permanent fence until you know it's what you want long term. And this is, and see, homesteading heathens says they're haunted by type 1 errors. Do things in a temporary status to learn if you want to make it permanent. That's, that's the way to get past that. You have to get past that or you'll never accomplish anything. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you guys you, that we do have the bio, uh, bio, uh, the bioreactor composting course available. Uh, I invite you, if you have not taken it yet, to consider taking it. 
40 bucks, 35 bucks for MSB members. I did speak uh, at a, a seminar series for Matt Powers over the last week. I would think I did four different speaking engagements. I have sold a ton of this course to people who had no idea who Jack Spirko was. Um, it's going to put that out there and they're not complaining. So if you're from the fold, uh, you might really want to consider taking this course because it does take time to implement this and actually get results out of the other side of it. And this is a good time to get that process underway uh, right now. And like I kind of leaked today, long term, there's kind of more to it. Uh, next up today, you can also support us by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. It'll take you to a directory page on my website that will show you all the stuff that I recommend. And it's all in alphabetical by category with real reviews written by me of stuff I really buy and really use where I wouldn't recommend them to you. Today's item of the day are the Knipex Cobra pliers. And uh, I found these last year thanks to J.R. Haley. Uh, he was nice enough to, to gift me uh, a, a set of three, uh, the 7-inch, uh, the 10-inch, and the 12-inch. And I was immediately hooked. I will never buy anything in kind of the shape and format of a channel lock plier, but these ever again, if you read my write up on them, you'll understand why. Uh, but I mean, a big part of it is that they adjust to whatever size you want them to, and they just stay there and they can be adjusted with your, the guys that are on video can see this. They can be adjusted with one hand. Try that with your channel locks, right? You know, and then they stay there. They're incredibly strong. And the way the teeth are designed, when they bite into something you're turning, I don't care if it's a pipe, they do not slip. They don't slip for the same reason that if a python bites your arm and you try to pull it off, it doesn't slip. It rips. Okay? And if it's bit into steel, it's not even going to rip. These things are the bomb. Today I added a video to my channel going over making a decision between the five and the four inch model for EDC. And you can watch that video if you want to in the write up that I have on the website. Uh, but both of them are great little EDC tools. I personally think the slightly larger one is worth the larger footprint. Watch my video to learn why. With that, I'll wrap up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Check this out. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if humble mechanic. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Humble Mechanics says, fun fact, that's me on the main Knipex banner on their site. Ha, ha, ha. Humble, I was I was just going to say, if you don't know about these things, you need to find out. But apparently he he's well in the know, and I would expect so. These are the best freaking tools. And I don't just mean these these pliers. Knipex is a brand, some of the best tools I've ever uh, looked at in my life. You know, they're up there with quality for like Klein. Uh, that's just so awesome. Uh, as far as questions, I do have a couple here. I actually got one from Plant Propagation USA, and I've got a super chat from Homesteading Heathen. Since you asked, if you have a question for me, go ahead and get it up right now. Put, um, put question in all caps, and then your question, and we'll try to hit this one. Uh, again, I want to thank Homesteading Heathen, who has a question and a super chat which you automatically, by the way, if you do a super chat, you automatically get started. I'm just saying. Uh, I have access to thick HTP plastic liner that I want to line my 400-gallon pond. Should I forget about the plastic and just buy clay, worry about plastic poisoning the fish I'll end up eating? Okay, HTP is totally fish safe. 
It is plastic, though. It will eventually break down and eventually will need to be replaced. Clay is permanent, and I think you'll like the look better. So I would be evaluating this from a standpoint of the total cost, the implementation, the final look, and the longevity that you're looking for, and then in the end, only you can make that final decision. If money was no object, and I had a choice between a pond liner, rubber pond liner, and a clay line pond, I'm going to take the clay line pond every time. Every single time. It's going to look better. It's going to function better. And if it's done right, it will never fail. And if it does fail, relatively easy to fix. If I don't have that option and I can make the pond that I'm looking for or I can't afford the clay and I already have the liner, I'll totally do it. I mean, I have, um, you know, basically they're Firestone liners in several of my garden ponds. And it's because it was either that or not have a pond. So, again, I try not to be an absolutist on anything. Plant Propagation USA says, off topic, what's your favorite non-fiction book? Oh, this is hard. I'm going to have to say favorite individual book of all time. Non-fiction. Hmm. I'm going to cheat and, and do them as a pair because they really do go together Jonathan Livingston Siegel and Illusions, both by Richard Bach. If you absolutely made me pick between the two, Illusions by Richard Bach. The, my favorite series, and I don't even like any, I tried to read his other books. I don't even like his other books. There's an author known as Piers Anthony that wrote a book series called the Geodacy series. There's four of them in it. And the first one is Isle of Women. And they're all on the same shtick. They're all very based in actual anthropomorphic fact. Where, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I don't even know the word I'm looking for now. Anthropomorphic, that's animals acting like humans. Um, archaeological fact uh, of humans' evolution. And the concept is there's this family that's together in the very beginning at, you know, as humans first are actually becoming humans. And throughout history, these same characters are reborn, sometimes quite separated, sometimes quite close together, like in a reincarnation type scenario. But they don't really remember each other. It's just vague memory. But it talks about things like in one of the books, how this society that was taking slaves would capture the children of their enemies and like the, the people, they'd just kill them, but they would keep the kids and the kids would be raised as their own, but all the kids would be raised together. And all these kids from these different cultures evolved the language. It's pretty cool. And it is an amazing series. None of the individual books are so great that I would say they're one of my favorite individual books, but the whole concept is probably best. So you get a little bit of a bonus answer there. Going back to uh, see if there's any other questions. Here's one from Chicken Duck, 1776. Did you ever successfully seal the area in your front yard with the duck poop? Uh, front in your yard? No, I did not. The pond that I tried to make down in the back 
failed, and that may actually get done at some point with a liner. It will be expensive. It will take a lot of effort, and there's other things that I have simply made more important in my design than that. But I would call that hole a type one error. Uh, I think that's it for questions. So thank you guys for today. Sorry for snapping out about Google, YouTube with the ads and stuff, guys. I apologize, but it just pisses me off. And I hope that when that kind of thing happens, you understand why. I care about y'all. I care about y'all. And I've made a statement. When I do a live stream, there'll be no more than one ad per 30 minutes. Because that's what Google and YouTube told me. And when I tell you something in good faith and I believe it, and it's because somebody else lied to me that it ends up not being true, it pisses me off. So fuck it. I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm just turning them off. I'm tur- I am never running YouTube ads from this day forward on any content ever again unless they actually fix this problem. Anyway, guys, take care. Have a good day. They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.